Hey, good morning, y'all. My name is Ed Griffinhagen. I'm one of the pastors on the staff here. Before I get started, I want to say this, like, and just quickly, I'm personally, like, I'm all about excellence. I think excellence honors God. Um, I know it honors God, but I can tell you sitting down there during the, the, the beginning part of our worship service, you know, when stuff gets messed up, if lights gets messed up, get get messed up, if sound is messed up, if, if an instrument gets messed up, it, frankly, in my flesh, it makes me crazy. It just makes me crazy. But I got super convicted as we were doing that. And it was like the Lord was putting in my mind, it's not about the lights, it's not about the sound, it's not about the guitar, it's not about the piano, it's about me. When he sang, uh, All Hail King Jesus. Like, All Hail King Jesus, that's what it's about. It's about him. Now, excellence does honor God, but the gospel's going to get proclaimed. And y'all, you know, the devil throws darts at everything we do. It's almost like if he doesn't, then we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Really? So, expect the darts. Kind of works right into the message today. You'll hear that in a minute. Expect the darts. Expect the persecution. Expect to, to, for him to try to hammer us. But at the end of the day, this house is going to proclaim the gospel over and over and over and over and over. And it is going to be about Jesus. And I love the music, and I love when the music and the lights are all perfect. I love it. Like, I love it. But it's about King Jesus. It's not about me, and it's not about James and the musicians, as awesome as our music is, it is about the Lord. So I just need to get that off my chest. And, and to, to echo a little bit of what, uh, of what has been said to me twice now today, don't screw this up. Um, Y'all know every Sunday morning when I pray before church, really usually before anybody's here, but this morning I prayed this at, at home, but it's the same thing. Lord, don't let me mess up what you got going on today and about every Sunday the the impression I get in my head is you're just not that important that if you think that you can mess up what I got going on you can't mess it up because it's about him y'all it's not about us it's just not so y'all last week we were uh we dove headfirst back into the book of Acts into a series that we have called uh, The Road Less Traveled, Paul's Second Missionary Journey. We're in Acts chapter 16 last week. We're going to be in Acts 16 this week as well. <clears throat> and it, Acts 16 highlights the stories of, of, of three folks who, who became believers uh, through Paul's ministry. And, you know, David talked about this. There's no such thing as randomness. James does a devotion with uh, the musicians and the tech team and the you know, and the, and the whoever's singing uh, before church every Sunday. And he's talking about, and he, he spoke a little bit about it uh, between the second, third song, I think, uh, what was going on in Philippi and this church that, and Paul says, be content, I've learned to be content. You know, and he sets that up. Uh, if you back up a couple of verses, Paul is talking about this church in Philippi and the way they generously, they supported him. Well, that's Acts chapter 16. It's not random that, that God is is speaking through both of these things and through the music today. But it's Acts chapter 16, and he talks about, 16 talks about 
three folks who became believers through Paul's ministry, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, the, the ministry in Philippi. And those three, I said last week, those three were Lydia, this, this, this wealthy businesswoman, this dealer of purple, because you, if you were dealing in purple dye and purple cloth, you were wealthy because purple dye was so expensive. So Lydia is one, and then this demon-possessed slave girl that we talked about last week, and then a guy that is known in Scripture just as the jailer in Philippians 16. What we see is the gospel is affecting every layer of society just like it does today, just like it has always done and like it is doing today. Today we're going to be in verses 25 through 40 in Acts 16, and we're going to take a look at this jailer dude, this prison warden that, that, that kind of took control of Paul and Silas. We're going to see if the gospel makes a difference in his life. When we left off last week, Paul and Silas were in an inner part of the prison. Scripture says they were kind of in solitary confinement in this rat-infested, you know, dungeon of a jail in Philippi, and their feet, if you remember, their feet were shackled up. Well, today, the narrative that we're going to talk through, this part of of Acts 16, it is this incredible kind of screenplay on the subject of salvation. And I get overwhelmed, like I just, I just get overwhelmed with the, the picture that the Lord paints in Scripture, the images that the Lord paints through real history in the Bible, real events. Acts, the book of Acts is, is accurate history, and the Lord paints all kind of pictures through the, the, the Acts of the Apostles. And, and it's really, the, the name of the book really should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but but the picture that the Lord paints in here, we see this incredible image of salvation. So let's jump in. I want you to look at, should be on the screen behind me. If it's not, it's in the worship guide. There we go. Starting in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. As we read through this, this passage today, I want you to look and notice lit, little details. So about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew out his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. Dude draws out a sword to kill himself. Paul says, don't do it. We're here. This, this, so, so I want to give you a few points here. The first is this. The first thing I want us to see in this image of salvation that we see in Acts chapter 16 is the prep work, the prep work for salvation. And I believe that the prep work for salvation is three or fourfold. So these two guys had been stripped and beaten with rods and they were put in chains, feet shackled. They were probably a bloody, swollen bucket of human flesh. And what did they do? Did they moan? Did they, uh, did they whine? Did they blame God? Did they give up? No, they didn't. Their jail time was not marked with that. It was marked with two activities. And those two activities were praying and singing hymns to God. And I would imagine that they were praying for God to, to strengthen them, to help them, to 
to help them to forgive their persecutors, to use their suffering to reach others for Christ. I would imagine that they praised and thanked the Lord for his salvation, for the privilege of suffering for the name of Christ. They probably thanked him for his his strength and his presence through all of this. And and you can kind of see this when you read all of Paul's writings. That thought permeates. The whole book of Philippians is rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Do you think that they felt like worshiping? I would think they probably did not feel like worshiping. Don't always act on your feelings, y'all. Sometimes you got to act despite the way you feel. you got to put one foot in front of the other despite the way you feel. you got to get out of the bed and put one foot in front of the other when you feel like just curling up in the bed being depressed and anxious. Act despite the way you feel. I don't imagine in the position they were in that they felt like worshiping the Lord. I'm sure they were hurting. I'm sure they were tired. I'm sure that they were scared. But they were determined to give glory to God. I'm going to bet that they clung to and tried to really understand Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 in the, in the Beatitudes. And what, one of the things that he said is, Blessed are you when people insult you. Blessed are you when people throw darts at you. Blessed are you when the devil is persecuting you. When people say false things about you. When people are evil towards you because of me. It's all of that stuff. They're, they're, they're ugly to you and they're nasty to you and they throw darts at you because of Jesus. Right? Blessed are you. Wear it as a badge of honor. You know? Again, all this garbage that happened this morning with the lights and the this and the that, if we, if we weren't on fire for Jesus, that stuff just probably wouldn't be happening. And the gospel is getting proclaimed. These guys in that prison, their, their radical response to worship, it was a decision of their will. They decided, regardless of what's going on, regardless of our circumstances, we are going to heap and dump praises onto the Lord. No matter what circumstances you and I find ourselves in, we can always choose to praise Him. And for sure, the folks around us may even come to know Christ because of that example. In this prep work that God is doing, we see His movement. In this passage, it's an earthquake. I would imagine most of the time He moves in other ways. He's always moving. But I would imagine it's not always an earthquake. He may move in your life or your friend's life or your family's life through a tragedy. He may move through the sensing of a lack, some kind of lack or some kind of need, or picking up a Bible and reading Scripture, or through a miracle or some other event in, in our lives. He can move us in through our thinking about life and thinking about death or through the preaching of the gospel a thousand other ways. But he's moving. The point is he's moving and he's shaking and he's, and he's orchestrating events around to prepare men and women, their hearts, their minds for salvation. I believe one of the major reasons that he causes this earthquake was to stir up the jailer to ultimately cry out for salvation. Lots of times the prep work in somebody's life is when they find themselves in a pickle in the middle of fear, in the middle of helplessness, or in the middle of of insecurity. In the case of the jailer, he felt like he was in a totally hopeless situation because 
this earthquake opened up all the jail doors and allowed the prisoners to escape. He had no doubt in his mind that they all hit the road. He'd fallen asleep while he was on duty. And you got to know that guards in that day were responsible for the prisoners. They were accountable if they escaped. And by that I mean that the punishment was usually the same sentence that would have been the prisoners. This dude was distraught and he whips out his sword to kill himself. For me and you, our circumstances are probably different. But every single one of us has seasons of life. Maybe it's right now. I don't know. Um, but times where the, we have serious problems, where fear creeps in and helplessness creeps in and hopelessness creeps in and insecurities in this life creep in. But in every instance of serious need, a person either turns towards God or turns away from God. A person's heart either softens towards him or hardens towards him. Either seek God for help or approaches some thing of the world to help, some humanistic thing. Point is this, God uses the feeling of helplessness or hopelessness to prepare a heart and a mind for salvation. We see the pinnacle of the prep work was a call out, a call out from, from Paul. In verse 28, Paul, this, this call out of hope. Because Paul jumps up and screams. Remember, this jailer's over there about to kill himself with a sword. Paul jumps up and screams, don't do it. Don't do it. We're here. We're here. Well, that saved that man's life because he was about to fall on that sword. It's an image of, a, of the heart and the soul and the mind of a man sensing helplessness and being prepared for salvation. And it is up to me and you as Christ followers to intervene and to cry out when we can intervene and cry out with a message of hope. Hope is one of the major differences on the good side of the cross. The lost world is in a hopeless state, and it is up to me and you to provide the message of hope. That's what Paul did for this jailer. That cry out, I believe, is a is part of the prep work for salvation. Without that, the world is lost and, 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 and ruined and, and, it, and the world dies in that state of hopelessness. What an honor and what a privilege it is to be a Christ follower, to be a Christian, to claim the name of Christ. What a privilege and honor it is to be allowed to play a little role, to be allowed to intervene in one of those cases. So the first thing we see here is this prep work for salvation. And then we see the call for salvation. Look at verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out. He, the jailer, brought Paul and Silas out. And he said, sirs, what do I got to do to be saved? What do I got to do to be saved? Two things here. There's this immediate search for salvation. This immediate search for deliverance, this immediate search for rescue, the jailer calls out for light. And he rushes in, and he's shaking like a leaf, and he hits the floor in front of Paul and Silas. And I would imagine this guy had, had heard that these two had been preaching about salvation in, in the city and been preaching about forgiveness, that people could be forgiven their sins and delivered from their sin and death 
and since being in jail, he'd heard them praying and he'd heard them singing. I'm pretty sure that this guy had reverence for, and fear for the God who answered a man's prayer so quickly and who had such enormous power. So he brings them out. The jailer brings Paul and Silas out and he cries out this urgent plea. He knew that forgiveness and salvation was what he needed. That he desperately needed to know this God of, of theirs. That he and everybody else that he knew needed to be cared for by the God who looks after his followers like he did for Paul and Silas. And he screams out, what I got to do to be saved? And so we see this call for salvation. And I'm going to jump back to that statement in a second. And then we see the proclamation, the proclamation of salvation which is believe. So this guy, this jailer who, who has come to recognize his own true condition, his own need, he risks everything to find out the answer to his question, what I got to do to be saved. The problem was that he thought he could do something. He thought he could do something to, to find deliverance. He thought he could do something to be rescued. He thought he could do something to be saved and forgiven. And the good news of salvation was so simply expressed by Paul and Silas in verse 31. Verse 31 says, and, and, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Just believe. Just believe. That was one of the hardest things for me personally 22 years ago to get right in my head. You mean I ain't got to do nothing? And, and it was like, you, you'll end up doing something, but you're going to end up doing something because you believe. You're not going to believe because you did something. You're not going to be saved because you did something. So they cry out, what I got to do? Paul and Silas say, you got to believe. So when we recognize, you and I, that when we recognize Jesus as Lord and we trust him with our entire lives, salvation is assured. When we place saving faith and trust in him as our Lord and Savior, salvation is assured. And there is nothing that we can do to make it happen. We just kind of, we got to simply accept what he has already done. I'll give you a quick story. There's this guy, he's fishing beside a river and suddenly falls into the, into the water and the dude couldn't hardly swim and he sees this big log and he, he grabs onto that log and that log could barely keep him afloat. It could barely keep him floating. But he held on tightly to that log for dear life. Now, unfortunately, he was heading straight for a waterfall, and the man could hear the roar of the water going over the waterfall. He could see the mist kind of, you know, mist comes up from a waterfall, and he could see all that. And right before he reaches the edge, a man on the side, on the bank, throws him a rope. Well, now the guy's got two choices. First, he could hold tightly to that log who, who had been, that log that had been keeping him floating, and he would go over the falls to a certain death, or he could let go of that log and he could grab the rope and be rescued and be delivered and be saved, pulled off to the shore. Y'all, this is the same choice that you and I faith, face with Christ. We can hold tightly to our old life and, and whatever we thought was keeping us afloat, whatever we thought was keeping our head above water. But the reality is that we are heading straight towards destruction. We think, whatever it is, we think that those are the things that are keeping our head above water, but they're not. We're heading straight 
for destruction. Or we can let go of this false hope and reach out to Christ for salvation. So Paul and Silas, they say, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So let's talk for a second about this whole household thing. I could never in a gajillion years overstate or overemphasize the influence that the head of a household has in spiritual matters. I, I, couldn't over, I couldn't overemphasize it. Now, apparently for this guy, the jailer, his living quarters were under the roof of this jail. Under the roof of these prison, inside these prison walls were his living quarters, He's in, he and his family. So this man and his family believed they trusted Christ as their Savior, and they repented of their sins. Now, that is not specifically mentioned here in Scripture, but it is clear because the very first act of belief and repentance is baptism. Verse 33 says they were baptized at once. And this guy, his repentance even manifested itself by caring for the wounds of the people, the two guys that he had mistreated so bad. So Paul and Silas took this family unit thing seriously. So the offer of salvation was made to the jailer, his entire household, which probably included servants too, family and servants. But it wasn't the jailer's faith that saved them. Mama's faith don't save you. Wonderful that mama had faith. Saving faith. Wonderful that mama's a Christian. Wonderful that dad is a Christian. Wonderful that you grew up in the church. But their belief is not going to save you. And your belief and your trust, no matter how fervent it is, is not going to save your children. They got to decide for themselves. They got to accept for themselves. Every individual's got to come to Jesus in faith and believe in him the same way the jailer did. But his entire family did believe, and all of them were saved. I want to say something. If you're listening to this on a podcast, or, or if you're here, or, uh, or if you're watching online, this is next week, next month, or tomorrow, I don't know. But ask the Lord to use you to introduce Jesus to your family so that they can come to believe in him. Beg him to do that. Beg him to do it. Y'all, I say it all the time, I guess. People die lost every day, and if you die lost, you go to hell. I weep for that. We should weep for that. And lots of them are in our families. They're people we work with. They're our children, our parents, our aunts, our uncles, our whatever. Ask the Lord to use you to speak Jesus into somebody's life. Matter of fact, I want to pray right now about that. Lord, we love you today. And Lord, we ask you to, to, to use us as inadequate and broken and fallen and sinful as we are. Lord, we beg you today to use us, to give us your words to speak about you to our family and our friends that don't know you. Lord, orchestrate the passing of our, the, the, the crossing of our paths. 
Lord, orchestrate the conversation and give us the words, give us your words to speak life into folks. In Jesus' name, amen. So, y'all, we see the proclamation of salvation, believe. Believe. And then in verse 34, we see the fruit of salvation. Look at verse 34. Then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And when I read verse 34 this week, the Lord sort of convicted me about the privilege that we have in ministering to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The jailer turned around and brought Paul and Silas in his living quarters, and he cooked them a big old steak dinner or something. And, and he was doing that, showing his appreciation for what God had done for him. Christ followers can't just, we can't just sit still and ignore people around us. Not if they have desperate needs, not if, and not if he or she is a genuine believer. That verse says that the entire household rejoiced. Why did they rejoice? Because God saved dad. And God saved the whole family, saved them from the grip of sin and death and condemnation. And they just couldn't help but rejoice. Who in that household could have ever in a million years dreamed that one of their father's prisoners, shackled up in chains, would one day bring a message to them that would set them all free from their sin? No one could have ever imagined that. So the fruit of salvation. Last thing I notice in this passage is the effect of salvation on people. Obviously on the one being saved, but I'm really even talking more about the people around them, the people in their world. The, how, what effect does salvation have on the people around us? Look at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Verse 37, but Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And now they want to throw us out in secret? No, 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 no. Let them come in themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to him, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And so in this experience, we're going to see a few effects that salvation has on people. First of all, there was a sense of guilt over the injustice that is seemingly a sense of guilt over the injustice done to Paul and Silas. Well, what do you reckon caused this? I'm going to guess an earthquake did it. Apparently, God moved and an earthquake did it. Most of the time, if there's some natural disaster, people's mind, bad ones, people's minds turn towards spiritual things. People's minds turn towards God. These men knew they had committed a serious evil. They were the judges and the rulers, and the, they had allowed themselves to be influenced by the wealthy, the influential folks in the city, the muckety-mucks of the city. They'd been beaten and punished and imprisoned. Without a trial, and I'm going to guess that their consciences were getting at them a little bit, and they decided to try to do what they could do to right the wrong. And so they released the men. These public officials got a little scared and got a little humbled. Verse 37, Paul reveals 
that he's a Roman citizen. And they're probably like, rut row. We wasn't supposed to do that. We should have, you should have told us that a while back that you were a Roman citizen because it's against the law for a Roman citizen to be denied a trial and to be beaten. And the point is this, that God uses this, this natural disaster, natural events to strike fear and humility into the city of Philippi because he wanted to use the church at Philippi. He wanted them to be left alone so that church could grow and become one of the great ministering churches in the first century. And that's exactly what happened. James talked about that. He was reading from Philippians. This beautiful body of Christ, this beautiful church that was rocking and rolling and thriving. And what we're seeing in Acts is the birth of that. And God's protective hand. And God's providing hand. Because he... he before the foundation of the world, he knew that that church was going to provide mega support for Paul and lead many, 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 many people to Christ. So these, these magistrates, they apologized to Paul and Silas and could very contritely ask them to leave the city. Scripture tells us then that, that the guys went to Lydia's house and they visited with the brothers and sisters there and they encouraged them and then they left. So let me begin to wrap this up. The first fruit in Europe was born. I've said this a couple weeks ago. Lydia was the first convert in all of Europe. So the first fruits in Europe are born in Acts 16. Now there's a Christian fellowship. Now there's a church in Philippi. And surely a whole bunch of folks are led to Christ in that church, through that church in Philippi. Surely tons part of that burgeoning church. But why did Luke write about these three? Why Lydia, why the slave girl, and why the jailer? First, I think it was to teach us something about the gospel, particularly that it is for everybody. Three completely different kinds of people. This rich, quote, religious woman, a slave girl, and a prison warden. There's a truth in that. There's a truth that we can pull out of the Scripture there, and that is this, that there is no, quote, type for becoming a Christian. If you're saying to yourself or if you've ever said to yourself, if you've got friends or family members that have said, well, I'm just really, I'm just really not, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm just not really the Christian type. That statement in and of itself is just invalid because there is no type. All of us, every human that has ever lived or will ever live, have one problem, and that is sin. Praise the Lord, we got one hope as well. And that hope is in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah, that he died in our stead, that he died in our place. And because of that, the church is a place where people who are radically different can find unity in Christ that they would not find in anywhere else in, in, in society. Radically different. Rich, poor, black, white, blue, green, young, old, conservative, liberal, religious, not religious, from, quote, good families and, quote, from, quote, jacked up families. All of us, every one of us, 
one problem, sin, and one hope for salvation, and that's Jesus Christ. And I have no idea where you're coming from today. I don't have the vaguest idea or what you've done or what you haven't done. But I do know that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you trust in him and you will be saved. Scripture says it all over the place. You will be saved. It's not a flip of a coin. It's not a 50-50 chance. You believe in him. You believe the gospel and you will be saved. And so these three stories, these three folks, they teach us something about the gospel. And second, I think that Luke recorded those three to give us some glimpses of different people in our area and teach us how to reach them with the great news of the gospel. In Lydia, we see this image of people who are spiritually interested. Lydia thinks of herself as a, as a prayer warrior, as a spiritual person. Where did Paul meet her? Down by the riverside praying. How do we engage her? Well, Paul engaged her in a spiritual conversation, and then they dug into Scripture. There's a lot of people in our little neck of, wood, neck of the woods here in the Bible Belt that fit that profile. And maybe they have a Christian background, and maybe they don't. Maybe they're a spiritual person from some other religious background. Maybe they're active in a church. Maybe they're not active in a church. Whatever the deal is, there's a bucket of people that are open to having some kind of a spiritual conversation. Well, how do we we'll call them the Lydias? How do we reach the Lydias? We expose them to God's Word. Y'all realize this is God's Word. We expose them to the Word. Well, how do we do that? We invite them to church. We invite them to church. We invite them to read the Bible with us. Ask them to read the Bible with you. There's a thousand different Bible reading plans. Just invite them to go have a cup of coffee with you once a week and, and read through a book in Scripture over a cup of coffee. Invite them to a connect group. We got connect groups all throughout the week. Men's groups and women's groups and co-ed groups. Remember, the Lydia's of the world, are, they're open to the conversation. And when you open the door, you need to be looking for God to open up their heart the way he did for Lydia. God is the one that convinces of truth. You just expose them to it. And when you can and I can get our arms around the fact that it is God that does it, you'll realize that you don't have to be a crazy extrovert to be effective in evangelism. You don't. I'm not a crazy extrovert by nature. I'm not. And you don't have to be. You just got to believe that salvation belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. We go through doors that he opens. When he crosses our path with somebody, we figure out a way to have a, a Jesus conversation with him. That's a little snippet of person number one. But I can make a pretty good case that most people and most churches' evangelism stops there. And the Lydias of the world are but one little subset of society. One bucket of, in this case I'm going to talk about three, but one bucket of people. Remember Paul, and uh, they met Lydia down by the river and the demon-possessed slave girl and the jailer. They ain't going down by the river to pray. They're not. Lydia was, because Lydia's open to the conversation. Lydia's praying. That demon-possessed slave girl, she physically can't because she's owned by some men, and the jailer just won't. For the slave girl and the jailer, 
New styles of worship music, not going to reach them. An incredibly effective creative arts and worship pastor, not going to reach them. A great first impression, not going not to reach them. A fresh new expression of church is not going to reach the slave girls and the jailers. The vast majority of unchurched or de-churched people, they ain't going to the church. They're not coming to the church even when they're faced with a lot of junk in their lives. For them, it's not about improving the product called church or church meetings or church events. It really means reaching those people apart from those events, apart from the church, apart the building, apart from the church events. A cool new venue is not going to reach those people. You know, as we sit here today, about 30% of the population surveyed in America checks the box that reads none under religious affiliation. They're nunners. We got to reach the nunners. 40 to 45% of millennials and Gen Zers check that box. Almost half the people say none. So how do we get to those two groups of people? The slave girls and the jailers. The quote slave girls the spiritually or physically captive, how do we reach them? Y'all, we got to be involved in their lives. we got to be involved in their lives. Our, one of our announcements, the announcement video, showed a little bit from M2540. That ministry is a great example of that. It's a great example of that. There's a guy named Larry, Larry Martin. Larry died a couple of years ago. Larry Martin was the first homeless guy, unsheltered homeless guy I ever met. I met him in the, fall, in the spring of 2015. And truthfully, over the next th four years, really, he literally was one of my best friends. Saw him every week. Loved, loved him. Great guy. In and out of homelessness. Larry's parents died when he was a teenager. Wrecked his world. The next 40 years was spent in and out of homelessness. Super great guy. Larry, he prayed. Sweet prayers. Ultimately, he was not a believer. But Larry was like one of, my, one of my closest friends. Larry checked out when his parents died. Larry wouldn't no more come and grace the doors of a church if somebody had a sickle at his throat. He ain't going to church. It ain't going to happen. Never. Never. Throngs of people in that ministry poured life and Jesus into Larry. Tons of people in this church poured into Larry. Tons of people in, in, at Maranatha Baptist Church, at Solid Rock Assembly of God. Tons of people from 15 different churches serving in that ministry pouring into Larry Martin. Larry gets cancer in his leg. It had spread on the other side of his hip. There was nothing they could do. Somebody in that ministry took Larry Martin to Emory to the doctor about once a week for months. For months. Larry ended up in hospice. We're pouring life into Larry for years. 
Never would that guy grace the doors of a church. Two days before he died in hospice, I'm sitting in about 8 o'clock at night, and he said something that made me think, oh, my gosh, this guy's not a believer. Shame on me for not having this conversation with him five years earlier. I said, Larry, are you, are you, like, are you okay? Are you right with God? I'm sure the words I use, are you right with God? He said, had a tear rolling down his face. He said, I don't know. I said, well, I don't know is a no. About two hours later, Larry gave his life to Christ, cascading, weeping, begging for forgiveness, and two days later he died. Y'all, if that ministry had not poured life into Larry and poured Jesus and proclaimed the gospel to him over and over and over, he would be in hell today. He wouldn't have walked in the door of a church ever, ever. We got to... We're not reaching the Larrys of the world by having a rocking music ministry. We're not reaching the Larrys of the world by my incredible exposition of the Word of God, as incredible as it may be. We're not reaching the Larrys of that. We're, we got to get out there, y'all. We're reaching them because we're doing life with them. You do life with somebody, you earn the right to speak Jesus into them. You don't just say, hello, my name is Ed, nice to meet you, and whop them upside the head with a Bible. Maybe God can do whatever he wants, but my own little experience is that ain't what works. Running the streets with folks, hanging out with, with them, doing our life with them. We got to take the church to the community. We live in a different world today, y'all. Half, almost half of the largest segment of the population ever seen in the history of the world is a nunner. They're not coming into the church. We got to go to them. And what an honor it is to go to them. Now, what about the jailers, the Philippian jailers of the world, the skeptics? Well, he and his household got saved because they saw and they heard Paul and Silas's joy in the midst of the suffering. Number one, and because the jailer was the recipient of Paul and Silas's extravagant grace. And Paul definitely recognized that the Lord allowed his suffering to reach the jailer and more than likely the other prisoners in the jail because remember, what it said, what the scripture said, they were listening. The other prisoners were listening. Y'all, the prisoners are listening. And not only are they listening, they're watching. They're watching. They're just like our little rug munchers when they're little, right? If you got children, they're watching and listening every word you say. And they will use it against you for evil when they get to be about 20. But the, the prisoners are listening and they that's why that Paul, that's why they didn't run when the, when the earthquake hit. No, they chose to do two things in the middle of that. What were those two things? Praising God, and they chose to display extraordinary grace for me and you. What if in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the suffering, in the middle of the junk in our lives, if we didn't say, God, what have I done wrong? If we didn't say, God, why me, why me, why me? What if we said, God, whose life 
are you trying to use me in? Lord, reveal in my mind the person who I need to tell this story to. What if, that, what if we began to realize that, that our pain may very well be used by the Lord to help someone else see the hope and the joy and the peace and the comfort that you have in your relationship with God? How incredible would your witness be? Like, are you kidding me? It could be no more incredible than that. And I think we got to do two things with it, two things with, with the pain. We got to see it coming and we got to see it through. We got to see it coming and we got to see it through. So, y'all, don't be surprised by it. Expect it. In John chapter 16, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. He had just poured into him. So that you can see that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Does that say you may have tribulation? No, it says you will have, these are Jesus' words, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The book of James, what does it say? Does it say count it all for joy if the junk comes? No, 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 no. Count it for joy when various trials and tribulations come. They're coming. So expect it. He tells us it's coming. And he has for me and you to be an overcomer. To be an overcomer, and, and the way, I believe, the way that he does that is not just by delivering you from adversity. Most of the time, we're not delivered from adversity. He delivers us through the adversity. Y'all get the difference between those two? Could he, can he, and does he sometimes deliver us from it? Absolutely no doubt. But the evidence out in the world most of the time is that's not what happens. He delivers us through it because he can use that witness. He can use the other witness too. But when he delivers us through some trial, through some illness, through some sure enough real pain, it is so that you can display to people a hope that goes way beyond anything that people place their hope in in the world. So see it coming. And then you got to see it through. You got to be you gotta, you got to be intentional in making a choice to never stop praising him. And there are going to be times when you don't feel like it. I'm telling you, you're not going to feel like it. But praise him anyway. Focus on his goodness. Focus on his promises. Y'all, we win. Cliche as that is, we win. Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain. We We win. Declare that. Sing about that. Put a smile on your face when you're doing it. The world is watching, and so I'm asking you, what is your witness, what, you, what is your witness going to look like? When the Lord saves us, transforms our hearts, renews our mind, we can look at life through a different set of lenses. We can see the pain and the nasty circumstances as a chance to put our hope and our joy in the Lord on display for the world to see. Nothing, this last thing that we see with Paul and Silas, when they saved the, the physically the jailer's life, they said, no, 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 we're not leaving. We're here. Nothing puts the gospel on display like grace in the middle of an injustice. 
We had a young lady in our church that called me Tuesday afternoon. And she was looking for some, a little bit of counsel about something currently happening. She reminded me of a conversation that we had six or seven years ago when she called because she had one of her friends who was just being nasty. Being nasty and rude and ugly on the, with verbally, just being mean. Y'all just being mean. The person was not a, a Christ follower. The girl in our church it, it was and is. Her friend was not. And her friend was just being nasty and ugly. Ever had anybody be mean to you? What do you want to do? What'd you say? Knock some sense into him. You want to throw? I, I'm throat punch, right? That's what your flesh wants to do. Well, that's probably not good pastoral advice. So that's not what I said six or seven years ago. Of course, and I'm being honest with you. She said, "Do you remember what you told me?" And it's that same kind of conversation I have with Susan, my wife. Like, I'm searching my memory banks because I don't want her to throat punch me because I don't remember what she said. But I remembered the gist of the conversation, and she said. That I, that I advised her to, 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 respond from, uh, to respond to the unkindness with kindness, to respond to the mean with grace, to respond to the nasty with mercy and love and kind words. And that was sort of the end that I remembered about that conversation. Well, this young lady Tuesday said to me when she reminded me of that, she, she reminded me or she let me know that this, that this girl called her um, a couple of years ago when something in our, in our friend's life was, she had some junk going on in her life, and this girl called her and said, I heard what's going on in, in your world, and I just wanted to call and tell you that, that um, I apologize for a few years ago being so nasty to you. She said, you met my nasty with kindness, and it caused me to pick up a Bible, and it caused me to go to church. And I got saved about two years ago. Well, y'all, God connects dots. Like, God connects dots. And if that, if that person had never called her and let her know that, she would never have had the vaguest idea that the kindness, just the kindness, just the extravagant grace, because when somebody is ugly and mean and nasty to you, you really don't want to be kind back to them. I mean, you don't. I don't. But this was such, it was such a profound conversation when we spoke on Tuesday, and it was such an incredible image of what God allows us to do because those two didn't, uh, their paths didn't cross randomly. God put that together. She didn't call me for some counsel because I ain't really that wise. She didn't call me randomly, and I didn't say to her what I said to her randomly. God orchestrated all that stuff, and he took her kindness and her grace and her mercy, and he renewed that other person's mind with that, and ultimately that person will be living in eternity with Christ because of this simple, this is simple act of grace and kindness and mercy. Y'all, it's unbelievable. Our pain and our struggles and our suffering should be a platform to display the peace and hope and comfort and even joy that we find in the Lord. It should be a platform put transparently on display for people to see.
It's all this Philippian church's birth. And when Paul writes back to them, the letter to the Philippians, it's what it's all about. Rejoice. Rejoice. Always. He says rejoice always in Philippians 4. Because the junk's coming. Now, if you want to know the best way to deal with the adversity and the struggle, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with him, if you are not a Christian, if you have never accepted that offer, I don't know how you can begin to go through the trials and the struggles and the pain of life. I I just don't have a clue because I remember the day they told me I had cancer and I don't know what I would have done had I not had the Lord's arms around me. So if you're here today and because it's coming, expect it, it's coming. If you want to know the best way to deal with all of that, it's to have a relationship with Christ. So I want to give us an opportunity if y'all would close your eyes and just kind of pray with me. It's not a complicated thing. Paul consistently preached a resurrected Christ, a Messiah that conquered death, a Messiah that died on that cross when he said it's finished, his work was finished, redemption was available, your forgiveness was sealed on that cross. So it's a simple thing today. If you don't know him, just know that you got to own it. You got to admit that you're a sinner, that you're in need of rescue, that you've been clinging to that log floating down the river probably for a long time. Well, that log ain't going to save you. Whatever you've placed hope in, if it was other than Christ, is false. Your sin's getting paid for one way or the other. I'm asking you today to consider accepting the fact that his death on that cross completely, once and for all, took care of that. It's a sacrificial death. He jumped on that cross in your place and in my place. And then he walked out. He went to the the grave completely dead, and he walked out completely alive, provided a, a way for you and I to live with him for eternity. Admit, confess, and believe today. Cry out to him to save you. He's never said no to anybody. So, Lord, I lift anybody, I lift everybody up here. Lord, I lift the folks up to you here today that are wrestling through this question that this jailer asked, what I got to do to be saved. Well, first of all, you ain't got to do nothing. Lord, your guy's answer was believe, and you will be saved. So, Lord, I pray that nobody here that doesn't know you, that they won't go to bed tonight without considering that offer. Lord, that they would lay in the bed staring at the ceiling tonight and cry out to you for salvation. So, Lord, I lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And, y'all, we've got a prayer station over here. If you need prayer, if you want prayer, we invite you to, to come. We invite you to, uh, to pray with us.
if you want to, we're going to lower the lights a little bit. If you want to come down and leave something at the cross, we invite you down here as well.